0: Welcome, food enthusiasts, to another episode of the Future Foodcast. I'm Pam Line Miller, your host for today, and I have with me Alec Lee. He's the co-founder and CEO of Endless West, and he's going to share with us all kinds of interesting information. Welcome to the podcast, Alec.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Well, first of all, what is Endless West and what...
1: So Endless West is a molecular wine and spirits company. We make wine and spirits without any aging or, or fermentation. So we're able to make, for example, our whiskey's overnight without any barrels without any aging.
0: Okay, this is a revelation because I've never heard of a molecular wine company before. So can you tell us a little bit about how that works? How how do you even do that? Or how-
1: is that the molecules we find in one food or beverage? You can find them in other places in nature as well. So if you think of let's say something as simple as a sugar molecule, you can find that in Grapes, in various other fruits. You can find it in sugar cane, sugar beets. You can get it from corn as well. And so the whole idea is that there are crops that are less sustainable, less scalable, less cost effective, and there are those that are more. And if you can go down the list of hundreds or thousands of different molecules from any food or beverage, there's a lot of conservation of those molecules in different yeasts. And so we can source those, bring them back, and then recombine them. Perhaps in impossible foods where they're trying to uh, original, uh, like find other sources for those same molecules or the same textures. It ends up looking a lot like that.
0: So you're telling me for the spirits that you create, you're just breaking it down to to all the individual inputs, essentially, and then trying to find a duplication for that out there in the the plant world or the molecular world. And a lot of those ingredients may be more readily available, right? So find and source. Is that?
1: So we're not making uh, what I call functional analogs. This is perhaps where we diverge a little bit from the plant-based meat world, they may have a lot of the similar functional features, but they're not at a molecular level the same proteins or, or the actual same components. Whereas for our spirits, for example, at a molecular level, we are really finding those components and then bringing them back together again. And so you wouldn't really be able to distinguish it at a functional or even at a molecular level.
0: That is absolutely fascinating. I, how, okay, this is really a novel concept. I think of, uh, our listeners are really going to be interested to know, how did you even come up with this idea? When did Endless West get started? Like, what was the impetus to do this?
1: Yeah, so we started in 2016 is, is when we were first officially founded. Although my co-founder and I were working on this, probably dating back to late 2015. The story is that he was uh, he was on a Napa Valley winery tour. He went to Gerger Chill's estate and had seen some sh- 73 Chateau Montalena Chardonnay on the wall. So Mike Gergich, um, whose namesake is uh, is obviously Gurgich Hills Estate, was the head winemaker at Chateau Montalena in the 70s. And So he had made this incredible Chardonnay. It was uh, entered into a competition in 1976 between American wines and French wines. Uh, Really it was, are New World wines great or not? And these, it was held in France with only French judges and these French judges voted for and it became kind of this big scandal because the French judges had to retract their ballot since they had realized what they had done. They're like, that sort of became known as the Judgment of Paris. This sort of historical moment was built up for him. This this bottle of wine behind this plexiglass case and he's thinking, I'd love to try that. So naturally he asks if if he could taste some of it. And of course, if their only bottle to say that, they said no. And so he got, he, he went home and on the ride home, he's thinking, you know, what a shame is it that no one really knows what this thing tastes like anymore. But if you take away all the history and, uh, you know, the, the terroir and, you know, the, all, all the stories that are sto- that are built up about it—it's a glass bottle with mostly water and ethanol and a bunch of other molecules. If I can figure out what they are and mix them back together again, I should be able to recreate this flavor profile for for myself and, and for others to try. So that was the that was the seed.
0: Wow, that's a great story, and I I love that a lot of times innovation comes out of you know some kind of gap or situation that a person finds themselves in that they're unhappy with or something. Missing. And in this case, the thing that was missing was an average person's ability to taste a really great spirit or wine in this case. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, putting the molecules back together, uh, breaking that down, I mean, that's all very detailed work, very scientific work. And I'm sure that's a lot of what you specialize in at Endless West. But what about the other things that we enjoy about spirits like the mouthfeel or, you know, the other characteristics that the spirits bring to us? Do you also try to simulate those or duplicate them? So they're indistinguishable?
1: Well, so it's an interesting question, right? I mean, there's all sorts of studies with both wines and spirits. Most of these studies, I think, focus on wine that show that if you tell someone a bottle is more expensive, they're going to perceive it as tasting better. So that's a part that, of course, has nothing to do with what's in the glass. And therefore, we can't replicate that part unless you also tell someone this is a $5,000 bottle, then they're probably going to love it that much more but if we simply think through that thesis of this is a liquid in which there's only molecules then if you can actually get all those same molecules back in at the exact right proportions you don't have to worry about engineering anything you don't have to figure out oh how do i do flavor separately from mouthfeel separately from you know astringency or aroma all those things are actually one thing they are the composition of the liquid. And so that's why we try to focus on the effectively, the first step is basically identification of the critical molecules that make a whiskey, a whiskey or a wine, a wine, and then bringing those molecules back in at the right proportions to recreate everything about that liquid.
0: Okay, so it's kind of like really, really figuring out the formula for that particular wine or spirit.
1: Basically, we're trying to reverse engineer the molecular formula for for any beverage out there.
0: Very, that is just such a cool concept. I can't wait to try some, uh, but there are other benefits. Okay, so one of the, the things that we're talking about here is you're making some really great tasting wine and spirits available to just a much broader audience that maybe wouldn't be able to pay the price point or have access to because of limited supply previously available spirits or wines. Right. But in addition to that there are a lot of other benefits of approaching the composition this way uh some environmentally sure I don't know what those are if you could tell us some of those that'd be great
1: yeah so so there's any number of advantages to, to thinking through the spirits world in this way or the wine world in this way so of course sustainability is is one of them and there's a number of advantages that all really stem from the core fact that we're going to take this otherwise difficult to scale or cost ineffective raw sort of feedstock, if you will, that gets converted into a wine or, you know, that gets put into a barrel, that we pull that out of the equation, right? So when that's out of the equation, and then we're going to the most scalable and and cost effective feedstock, that almost always means that we're going to get, that it's going to be more cost effective and more sustainable and easier to access uh, by virtue of the fact that it is far more scalable, right? It's also gonna be more cost-effective because it's made in much larger scale. So for example, the alcohol that we use in our products largely comes from corn. And corn is of course an incredibly efficient crop. That's why we use it for so many different uh, things in food and beverage. And in fact, that's why there's so many alcohol fuel plants in the country because pretty much all fuel sold in the US has some amount of ethanol in it. All that ethanol is coming from corn.
0: Yeah, and corn is a much more readily available crop than, you know, some of the other inputs that go into these spirits. That's and right.
1: Our, I was going to say, certainly much more efficient than, than, let's say, a grape.
0: Yes. And you know the details about growing grapes, I'm sure, but it's not, it's a very, very particular process and takes a That's long right. time.
1: That's right. So you get, you know, what, one metric that we use to sort of think through, are we actually getting advantage by doing this is- how many calories we're getting per acre. And the yield in terms of calories per acre for corn is unfathomably higher than that of of grapes. But there's other metrics that I think are are relevant as well, right? And, And that is how fastidious are these crops from a pesticide perspective? So that's one. And then another would be how much water do these crops require and how is that water currently sourced? Right? So a lot of the grapes that are grown in our country are coming from California, which is drought stricken, right? That, that's not, that's not news to anyone. And so most of that water is being tapped from the aquifers. It's not coming from rain. Whereas the water that's used to grow corn largely comes from rain. And so you already have a big advantage there. You know, the fact that they need far less pesticides for something like corn than for grapes is, is really another critical benefit that you know you don't get this going out in the ecosystem, and you also don't get those pesticides ending up in your final product. You know, there, there's there's scarcely a wine out there unless you're really going something really niche, biodynamic that is going to be pesticide-free. Even organic, uh, even organic crops still use pesticides. They simply use organic pesticides, but they are pesticides nonetheless, and they're they're still not good for you. you know, those things are going to end up in those products, and so th- there, there's many metrics. By which we could think through, like, is this better for the planet? Is this a cleaner product? And so by pulling the grape, by pulling the barrel out of the equation, we effectively automatically get a sustainability advantage, the cost effectiveness. But we also get a lot more control, right? We can control the flavor profile to the nth degree, which is incredibly difficult with grapes. Of course, one of the critical features of the wine industry is that you kind of take what you get. But that's largely true in spirits as well. if there's a problem with the rickhouse, if there's a problem with the warehousing or the aging over time, you know, you kind of just have to live with that. And so we can iterate far faster than the, than the traditional life cycle of, of a new product might be in wine or spirits.
0: Well, Alec, you have mentioned several things that our listeners are really keenly interested in these days. Uh, the first being the sustainability of it all. You know, the fact of looking at the resources that we have and how can we best utilize them. And, and the wine um, traditionally made from grapes. Well, that's a limited resource that also requires a lot of our natural resources. You were mentioning like very water-intensive. That's not not normally grown in areas that have a lot of rain. So we've got to be pulling that from other sources. And in addition, pesticide more susceptible to some kind of uh, challenge with pests where you have to use pesticides and and different um, problems with growing the grapes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That need to be treated. So, so that's another one. Consumers care more now than ever. I think they're paying a lot more attention to what is in the food and drink that they're consuming because they're realizing there are all these treatments that have been going on in the food and the drink that they're consuming. And those are all great uh, highlights there. You're really hitting some really sensitive areas that people care about. Um, but in addition to that, you know the time—the time that traditional spirit making and winemaking takes—is, you know, you talked about the the aging process. You're you're circumventing the aging process. I mean, I think that's, that's right. a big one. That- it's
1: it's huge, and, and you know, it matters not just for the ability to bring things to market from a, from a practical and economic perspective, but it really helps level out a lot of boom and bust cycles that you see in the supply chain for a lot of these uh, certainly in our industry primarily focusing on you know white oak barrels spirits wine etc you kind of see this in a lot of different industries in food which make um, cultivation actually really challenging so for example the vanilla or even the cocoa market you know they they kind of cycle through these booms and busts because, you know, you'll have overplanting in response to price increases. But, you know, a vanilla orchid, for example, takes years to grow. And then they'll plant all this vanilla, harvest all this extra vanilla, it floods the market, the price crashes, and then all those farmers are sitting there with all this product they can't sell, and then they have to switch crops. Well, now there's a supply crunch. And so you do this over and over and over again. And by virtue of uh, again pulling those difficult to scale products out of, uh, sort of sort of out of the equation or 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 time intensive products uh, or feedstocks processes out of the equation, you really help stabilize supply and and, and demand in a way that can be actually be responsive to what consumers want so that ha- I think helps our industry as a whole uh, in addition to actually being able to re- be responsive to consumers. Uh, because then you don't see price shocks in the market
0: right that whole stabilization piece i think is really important because especially now with the challenges we're having there's Not any stabilization in the supply chain. That's right. For natural reasons, like you were talking about, maybe the boom and bust of crops that are needed to be grown, but also because of the challenges of of what we're having to get things from where they're grown to where they're able to be utilized in the manufacturing process or the creation process of the spirits. Yeah, that evenness of the pricing that results from just stabilizing Mm -hmm. that whole market should not be underestimated either. It's absolutely kind of like, yeah you you talked about you know the the traditional way that things have been made and you're kind of upsetting that a little bit and giving another avenue not that that's going to go away but there's another option out there uh for i think that might be a bit of your mission to give yeah. some options to consumers
1: yeah and so you know it's not merely stabilizational obviously that's a big one we're fortunate enough to have Come up with this technology that is also more cost effective than traditional incumbent methods. Um, really, we're more cost competitive uh, at this point than the vast majority of manufacturers, if not all manufacturers in the industry. And that really allows us to price according to what we actually think makes sense to the market, rather than trying to price to our cost of goods. Um, and so one of the things that that I think is important to address in the food system, especially today. You know, to your point, there there is no price stability right now. Um, largely, those prices are all going up. Uh, you know, how long that's going to last or, or be sustainable is really anyone's guess. But I think w- what is interesting to think about, you know, our, sort of our, uh, if you will, our our first world food system right now, is that you're seeing a lot of innovation and trends towards the healthier, cleaner products largely as a function of premiumization. And I think that, that that's a really interesting problem with the food industry right now, because if you think about the aim again, of like the farm to table, organic, you know, whole ingredient, um, you know, no, no processing. If you if you think about the values that all of those things are trying to bring to the table, those are not scalable and, and accessible uh, for for the masses, right? And, and so the, the problem is that we're cutting out. If, if those are the values that we put forward as like this, is how everyone should eat, then we're functionally just cutting out the vast majority of the population, even even in the U.S., let alone outside the U.S. in, in, developing, uh, in developing countries. And so what, what does that really mean for them, right? Like, are they relegated to simply just eat the stuff that like we don't want to eat anymore or eat the way that we want, don't want to eat anymore? And I think that the, the, the broader issue of, of how we make food and beverage and, and make it um, cleaner healthier more accessible more sustainable should not be something that is merely limited to those who can who can afford it at the top end of the of the income distribution right it it should be something that's accessible for all and so that's why i think this technology is really critical you know right now we're applying it within wine and spirits but we've seen other applications of of this very technology happening outside that and i think that's a really important thing about the broader food system that we want to be to contribute to over the next several years.
0: Yeah, that's a really worthy goal because that really have a large impact and not just in focused areas, like you were saying, trying to make things available to more of the masses and not just a singular area. But to that point, can you tell us what the future of Analyst West is looking like or what? What some of your future plans might be? What some of your thoughts are outside of wine and spirits?
1: So we we actually had done a lot of work with another company that has recently raised its own capital called Voyage Foods, um, and, and you know they've brought uh, you know they're, they're going to be bringing um, chocolate, coffee, peanut butter to market, allergen free, you know you know that doesn't require raw materials from conflict-stricken regions, right? Unfortunately. The majority of chocolate is is you know and cocoa is grown in regions that still employ child labor that still employ slave labor and you know one of the things that we really wanted to develop with them again was this how do we take an incumbent product that is made using challenging um, or long term unsustainable or you know in this case also human ethics that has these challenges associated with it and how do we meet both the desire to replace that product with inputs that actually meet all of the culinary characteristics or or the the sensory characteristics that that we want and make something that is cost-effective and more affordable than what is available right now because if we can do both of those that's i think really when we'll see transformation in the food industry you know one of the i think one of the big challenges with a lot of the food technology space broadly speaking is exactly that you know, there's a big focus on commodity products and those are just inherently very, very difficult to displace in a cost competitive way, right? And so, you know, I'm certainly not the only one with this thesis in, in the market, right? Is that you don't get true replacement of a category until you can actually achieve price parity and, you know, when you're dealing with a lot of commodity food products, you have to get some massive scale before you can actually become cost competitive. And so th- that's really a unique aspect of what we're trying to do over the next several years, you know, um, inside of Endless West, you know, and, and you know, with other companies that we've worked with, like Voyage Foods, where we can bring those cost competitive products to market now, not in 10 years not after billions of dollars of you know, in, investor capital, but now.
0: Yeah, and that is very exciting. And you mentioned an important thing. You have where you started with Endless West in the spirits category. However, you will do this same process for other kinds of categories like you're doing with Voyage Foods.
1: Yeah, so you know they, they really built out their technology. Um, the, a lot of their technology is sort of built in-house. Um, I don't want to say that, that we built it for them. We're very closely partnered you know over the last couple of years and now they're running you know they they just announced another round of, of funding and and Adam Maxwell, the CEO there is really an exceptional leader in in the space and extremely well uh, very experienced, I think is kind of perfect for this role outside of the wine and spirit space that we're focused on, which I think is why we've we've gotten along so well and why you know there's plenty of space in, in the market out for, for both of us.
0: Yes. And that's exciting when you can join forces and bring that larger opportunity uh, not only in product selection but in scalability to to the public. I mean, I think there's I'm excited about what the future holds. Is there anything Absolutely. else? Yeah, for sure. Is there anything else that you would like to share with our audience today, Alec? We covered some really great topics and I really appreciate yeah. it.
1: Yeah, of course. Well, one thing that I could ask a lot that, that I think is interesting is. What makes the wine and spirits industry very different from a lot of other food and beverage certainly not all but is the very very deeply ingrained emotional connection that people have with those products right again that's not to say that people don't have emotional connections tied with other food and beverages, there's non-alcohol but you know i don't know any industry that has more self-proclaimed connoisseurs than wine and spirits quite frankly and so you know, one of the things that we we've been focusing a lot in in our conversation on sort of like the technical aspects and sort of the advantages but one of the challenges uh or the things that i get challenged with quite frequently is well that's all fine and good if you can make a product that objectively tastes as good or better than what's out on the market but you know you've taken all the romance out of it so so what now and i, I I'll, I'll share a, a story about a Uh, a Japanese chef that I met who was was based here in San Francisco. And he was specifically asking me that question about sake. And the dilemma that he posed was, Alec, what we're seeing in the sake industry is a huge consolidation of a handful of very large conglomerates uh, really dominating the sake market, and really just pushing out a lot of the smaller craft sake makers who, you know, make things that are really special and different unique flavor profiles. And we're getting this homogenization in the industry of like, it's all just kind of the same low quality sake, because that's the only thing that's cost effective. And he kind of stops and he says, don't you think that your technology is just going to perpetuate that problem? And it's easy to see where he's coming from, right? Which is like, okay, here's a technology player. You know, if you think through how a lot of Silicon Valley startups have approached quote unquote technology, it is, destroy the incumbent, and replace it with my, one, with my one singular solution. And I think that's understandable, but wrong frame of mind for how we're thinking through operating in this space. And the analogy that I'd rather use is, uh, rather than thinking of us like an Uber, is to think of us more like perhaps a Spotify, or, or really just the electronic music industry in, in general. Right. And so, you know, I responded effectively, like, consider that electronic music may have disrupted certain mechanisms, you know, certain certain record labels, certain mechanism of distributing, of distributing music. But right now you can pull up your computer and you can listen to artists from all around the world at the click of a button. People that, you know, if you don't have the money to go fly to hear them, you may never even have heard of them before. Okay. And what our technology allows us to do is to make these very unique, very different, very diverse flavor profiles, all in a cost-effective way. And yes, it is not gonna be the same romance as seeing your favorite artist live in concert, but you're still gonna have an appreciation for the diversity of what's out there by virtue of, of employing a technology like this. And so we see ourselves very much supplementing the industry, raising, you know, as you mentioned early in our conversation, like um, making things more accessible, right? Making different flavor profiles, things that people wouldn't otherwise be able to get their hands on, making that accessible and showing that there's value to those things too. And so I see ourselves not actually displacing the small craft special manufacturers. I see ourselves really as uh, displacing a lot of the incumbent mass market, you know, factory farming Type of manufacturing where you know there's a cost advantage, and that's primarily what they care about in that space. And, and so that's that's something that we can we can get some real cost savings on and, and bring some real advantages to the table for. So I very much see a future. You know, you also asked like, where do I see endless west going? I very much see a future where endless west, you know, lives very much in harmony with a lot of other craft manufacturers because there's there's a space for that. That is not really what we're trying to replace, uh, and then there's also space for really when you want, you know, ready-to-drink cocktail, something that's simple, fast, affordable, right? And that that's really where we want to focus.
0: Yeah, thanks for that d- distinguishing that because Alec, I I think it's a win-win. I think it's an and rather than an or. Absolutely. And uh, list West is bringing that and to the table so that we as consumers have the choice to make. And sure. I really appreciate you uh, help bringing all of this information to our listeners and watchers. And I can't wait to see where endless rest goes next. Alec, thanks for being with us today.
1: Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Future Foodcasts. Future Foodcast is powered by farm to plate the leading food blockchain platform. Subscribe on YouTube or wherever you listen to podcasts to stay up to date with the very latest innovations in the food industry.